Do you feel like a complete and utter Muppet? I'm sitting around reading law books on the weekend going, oh god, this is interesting. <laughs> they've, they've amended section 127. This was supposed to send you off on a good note, not a <laughs> <laughs> thinking about climate change. You're listening to The Briefcase. Hello and welcome to season three, my friend. It is Wednesday, 7 June 2023. I'm Sarah and I am your host. And we are officially at episode 30, which means I can finally say we are 30, flirty and thriving. Thriving. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to get your early 2000s cinematic education sorted immediately. Anyway, I've missed you. And guess what? I've been working super hard behind the scenes to make season three bigger and better than ever. So in that vein, I've got something super exciting to share. Season three of The Briefcase is officially brought to you by the University of Queensland Law School. And as you can see, I'm so excited that I am way overusing my sound effect button. I'm going to hit it again. I don't even care what you think. Anyway, I digress because it's time to ask the eternal question. What's in the briefcase this week? This one needs no introduction. Oh wait, maybe it does. So I flew down to Sydney to interview the one and only Michael Kirby. This has to be a watershed moment for the show, as well as for me personally and professionally. It was just an incredible experience and something that I want to share with you in its entirety. So I'm going to split our interview into two parts. Today you'll get part one, but you'll have to wait on the edge of your seat to listen to part two, which will debut a little bit later in the season. And I hope you enjoy listening to this as much as I enjoyed recording it. Part one of my interview with Michael Kirby is brought to you by QT Sydney, where I was rescued from ordinary accommodations by their luxe designer hotel in the heart of the Sydney CBD. Rooms feature QT, dream beds, Dyson hair appliances and designer touches. So why not indulge in their cinematic five-star hospitality the next time you're in the Sydney CBD? I told them you would. Don't make me a liar. Your Honour, I now know that I'm not allowed to call you Your Honour. No, uh, we've got rules in this business, and if you're no longer a serving judge, uh, you don't have the title, and you're not entitled to any other titles. So, um, that being the case, uh, you can call me Michael, which is my given name. I understand that that is definitely your given name. I feel entirely unworthy of calling you Michael, so I'll do my best. How are you? Very well, thank you for coming in here to do it and in such a lively manner and for bringing in a coffee which no one has ever done before. I am aghast that people come into your chambers and expect that there would be coffee provided to them. I am aghast. Aghast, that's a very good word, a very old-fashioned word. (laughs) Well, you can be as aghast as you like, but that is the fact. Unbelievable. And for all those wondering, soy mocha is Mr. Kirby's beverage of choice. And Kevin Rudd. uh, Oh! Yes, I share that with Mr. Rudd. Okay, excellent. So we are meeting in your chambers in absolutely stunning Sydney. 
Um, and I'm beyond thrilled and honoured and delighted to have you on our spunky little podcast, The Briefcase. So thank you so much for making the time. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So today we're talking about a few of the decisions that you have reflected upon as being the dissents you loved. That's correct. Uh, I have been called by some critics uh, the great dissenter. (laughs) Uh, And on the whole, I didn't dissent in too many cases. Everyone where you dissent, you've actually got a right, and therefore (laughs) that puts a limit on um, unnecessary dissents. Yes. But by the time cases get to the High Court of Australia, or even to the Court of Appeal of New South Wales, where I was before I was appointed to the High Court, the case is going to be complicated or difficult, and it's going to lend itself to disagreement. Uh, Respectful, courteous, intellectual disagreement which one good thing about our uh, legal system is that the judges are allowed to dissent and Mm. they do so and they are expected to state their honest and true uh, reasons and that is what I always tried to do and my colleagues also tried to do they just reached a different conclusion Mm. that is because of the English tradition doesn't exist in most countries of Europe and in countries that copied the European civil law system. Mm. There, the judges are generally not allowed to dissent. They've got to reach a consensus and then speak that consensus. But the English in their appeal courts always had the right of a minority to express a different view. Mm. And they did that because they believed that out of diversity of opinions would ultimately emerge uh, the correct opinion. And uh, so I'm speaking really for two reasons. First, to show the uniqueness and speciality of our legal system, that the judges, whether you agree with them or disagree with them, are not corrupted and they are expected to state their own opinions. And secondly, that the world today is a world of international law, especially international law of human rights, Mm. and therefore uh, that we have to adjust our interpretation of our constitution so that it is adjusted to the realities of the world we live in today, a world of international law. Mm. Can I ask, are you aware of your legend status amongst the legal profession in Australia? I I hope not. Uh, I'm a person who served uh, in high judicial offices. I'm proud of doing so. I disagreed with my colleagues on a number of occasions, but I never doubted that they were honest uh, and uncorrupted uh, and highly talented and professional judges. And that was just how it was. I think it may have been um, affected by the fact that During most of my time on the High Court of Australia, I was the only justice who had been educated throughout school years in public schools. Most of them had been educated in private and religious schools, but I am a product of public education where two-thirds of Australians are educated. And I grew up in the post-war, immediate post-war era, with um, schoolmates who were often quite poor Mm. and I think that gave me a different take 
on society and on its attitudes to law and made me more questioning mm. uh, of uh, the uh, law and whether it needed to be re-expressed. Mm. Now, well, I'm the product of, of public schooling in my primary school years and lived in housing commission houses all through my youth. So I can... It's all out now on the table, Sarah. We're, we're, uh, we're owning up to our uh, <laughs> ill-begotten past. Exactly. But it's something to be proud of because, as you say, you come at it from with a, with a diversity of perspective, which is so needed. Yes, indeed. Mm. So today we're talking about these decisions that you loved dissenting upon. Is that the correct use of the phrase? It, it wouldn't be that I loved dissenting upon it. When I disagreed, I had to write my own reasons, which is a, can be a burden. Mm. If you don't disagree in the system of the High Court, you just send around a little note saying, I agree with um, Smith, J. Mm. Uh, and that is the end of the story as far as you're concerned. Or you may suggest some changes to Smith J and generally they will be accepted. But where you get to the High Court, you don't get there unless you are granted special leave. And that means the case has something special about it and therefore it's one upon which reasonable people may disagree and often it's a case where there has been a dissent in the intermediate appellate court, the Court of Appeal or full court of uh, the different jurisdictions of Australia. So um, it shouldn't be a source of surprise. In fact, for me, the source of surprise was that there were not more dissents from the other justices. They had a much more common and shared philosophy, I think, and I just didn't have that same philosophy and uh, and understanding of legal principles, so I just had to tell it as I saw it. Mm. So the first one of those decisions is Garcia and National Australia Bank of 1998. Well, I put that on the list. Actually, it's not a dissent uh, in that case, but it's an important case for the beginning of this conversation because under the common law system, you've got to understand how you extract from the long-winded, sometimes detailed uh, discussion of the principles by the justices, mm. you've got to know how you extract the binding rule of the case. And the binding rule is basically what you have to apply in future cases. So when I talk about dissenting cases, unless the law has been re-expressed in the meantime, the duty of a lawyer is to extract the rule from the majority. You don't take it out of the dissenting opinion. Mm. You can look at the dissenting opinion and the law may advance to embrace the dissenting opinion as it has done quite often mm. in the High Court of Australia, but um, your duty as a lawyer, as a practitioner, is to go to the end of a decision to find out whether the judge has agreed with the orders of the court if they have agreed with the orders of the court, you then have to go through that judge's reasons and find out what was the essence of the reason that led that judge to that conclusion. And for the purpose of extracting the rule that is binding under the common law, you don't have regard to what the minority have to say. So it's very important as we approach uh, three dissents that I love to uh, keep in mind 
that for the purpose of binding, uh, finding the binding rule in the cases, you've got to discard my uh, brilliant dissent and you've got to go to the majority and extract the rule, the binding rule of the case, to the decision of the majority in the court. That's democracy, really. Mm. And uh, this is all explained by me in a very neat way in a case called Garcia. It's Garcia against the National Australia Bank in 1998 in the High Court. And that was a case where there were differences of view, though in that case, though I had a a difference of view, I didn't disagree with the orders. Mm. And therefore, you can look to my reasons. And This is a very neat explanation at paragraph 56 in that case, 56 to 58. You you find a brilliant exposition of how you extract the rule in a case. And of course, in my day, as a young law student and lawyer, we lived in the age of the common law, and most of the legal principles binding in society were made by judges. Mm. And that changed during my lifetime, so that most of the law is now made in Parliament, and it's made in the form of statutes or subordinate legislation. And therefore, the rule is a bit different now, but in those days, you had to comb through the cases and find the binding rule. Uh, whereas now the main purpose of the judiciary is to come through the case and find the uh, rule that emerges as to the interpretation of the statute, not as to the interpretation of what judges have said. Mm. So I just thought that that was an important matter to keep in mind in talking about dissents. It may be that you don't have to have regard to what I have written, but What I did in my reasons was to try to explain why I was taking a different view from the other justices. And I think that's what we're going to talk about in the cases of Al-Kateb against Godwin, Mm -hmm. a case on uh, the impact of international law on the interpretation of our Australian constitution, Mm -hmm. the work choices case, which is also a constitutional case, in which I disagreed and with Justice Callum from the other justices, that concerned the meaning of a, a provision in the Constitution for industrial relations law. And the third case was the very last case I sat in on a, a hike on the High Court of Australia, Wurrigil against the Commonwealth, which was the case that tested the legality, constitutionality of the Northern Territory intervention. And uh, so they are the three cases, and uh, that's uh, what I'm here to talk about. Fantastic. All right, well, starting off with Al-Kateb and Godwin. Yes. So what happened in that particular case? Well, that was a case of a man who was born in Kuwait, but not entitled to Kuwaiti nationality. His parents had been from Palestine, He was entitled to Palestine nationality, but he could not get from Kuwait into Palestine because he had to go through Israel. Mm. And Israel had a rule that it didn't allow people to pass through their borders to get into Palestine. 
they thought there were altogether too many Palestinians anyway and they didn't want to add to them. Right. So that was the problem facing Mr Al-Khateb. He got in touch with a people smuggler. He came to Australia in a little boat. He arrived and he was immediately put into detention. He was kept in detention for several years. He made applications for a refugee visa and uh, he was denied it. And he then brought a case in the High Court saying, under the Migration Act, there is a scheme. And under that scheme, the detention must be compulsory and immediate, but it can be lifted if the person involved elects to go back to their country of nationality. Well, in the end of his battles in the tribunal and the courts, Mr Alcatem said, OK, I'm done, I'm giving up. Take me back to the country of my nationality, Palestine. But although the Commonwealth authorities tried over some time to get him back into Palestine, the government of Israel would not agree and would not move him. So the issue was, did the act apply in that sort of case where the, this was supposed to be the parachute out of detention? Mm. Or did the act not apply? Or if it applied, was it unconstitutional? And so that was the decision which we had to resolve. Mm. Uh, and by a majority of four to three, uh, the High Court held that he could be kept in indefinite detention. Two justices, just Chief Justice Gleeson and Justice Gummo, said, no, uh, the Act only means that if you can be sent to your country of nationality, you can use the parachute. But I said, well, not only is that the way you should interpret the statute, but it's the way you should interpret our constitution under which the statute is made. And that was because I took the view that you could use international law in understanding the meaning of the constitution. And that was disagreed to by Justice McHugh, an old friend of mine, a very great judge, who said, this is heresy, and Justice Kirby is guilty of heresy. <laughs> so. Uh, I then replied, it's not heresy, it's simply adapting the circumstances in which our constitution is read today in the circumstances of international law. I would be pretty clear that in a certain number of years, I won't say how many, the constitution will be interpreted to reflect the principles of uh, relevant international law. But that was the matter upon which I dissented, and it was basically simply referring to the world as it is today, not as it was in 1901 when the Constitution was written, 1903 when the High Court was established, or in the years in between when uh, the world had much less international law than it does today. So that's a, a quite an important case and quite an interesting case, and that's why I love it. Do we know what happened to the gentleman in that particular case? Well, as a matter of fact, uh, when I left the High Court, the University of Sydney gave me a farewell function in the great hall of that university, and all sorts of important people were there, and suddenly somebody stood up to ask me a question. 
and it was Mr. Al-Khateb. He had ultimately been given a visa by Minister Vanstone in the Howard government, Mm. and so he ultimately was admitted to the Australian community. He became a draftsman. He worked uh, in a regional place. I think he got his wife to come out, and he didn't have to go and try to get through to Palestine uh, because that was a futile undertaking. And Mm. um, so he just asked me a question about the case and I gave him an answer. But uh, of course it was uh, quite interesting at the the occasion to see this man who we had struggled so hard to keep out of our country rising and asking me a question, uh, why did we do it this way? And so that gave me a, a good cue to speak about my descent in Al-Khateb versus Godwin. Mr. Godwin was somebody who was in charge of the detention centre, so he had brought the proceedings against Mr. Godwin and uh, he he lost the case, but he won the visa, and I think he won the argument. But people have got to have a look at that decision, which is in 219 Commonwealth Law Reports 562, to decide whether I got it right or whether it was heresy, as my friend Justice McHugh said at the time. Well, that's all we've got time for this week on The Briefcase. It's time to close her up. See you next time. I'm Sarah Kral and this is The Briefcase. Briefcase.